Welcome to Saturday Evening Torah Class, an in-depth interdisciplinary study of the Hebrew Scriptures. Tonight's lesson is week number 9, Deuteronomy chapter 6, continued. Now I'm going to need your attention and your patience tonight, because the first half of this lesson is significantly different than the last half. And the last half deals with one of the more challenging messages that I've had the privilege to present to you. One of the most revered Jewish sages, the Rambam, known as Maimonides, who lived during the 12th century, said this. The ancient sages said, whoever has teflin on his head and arms, tzitzit on his garment, and a mezuzah on his door may be presumed not to sin. For he has many reminders And these are the angels that save him from sinning. As it is said, the angel of the Lord camps around those who revere him and rescues them. The Rambam's point is that the wearing of tefillin and tzitzit and the fastening of a mesusa to the doorpost of one's home brings the Lord and his commandments into a constant reminder to the Jew who does such a thing. And therefore, the likelihood that such a person would knowingly sin against uh, God is remote. By the way, as I've taught you before, the Hebrew word that we usually and sometimes in air translate into English as angel is malach. And in its plainest sense, malach simply means messenger. And that is more the sense that Maimonides means it here. Now, as we continue today in our study of Deuteronomy chapter 6, We're going to look carefully at the practice of Orthodox Judaism in the wearing of devices called tefillin and placing a mesuzah at the entry to one's home and often at every interior doorway throughout a house. So, open up your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 6. If you have the complete Jewish Bible, that's page 204. We're going to start reading at verse 6. These words which I am ordering you today are to be on your heart. You are to teach them carefully to your children. You are to talk about them when you sit at home, when you're traveling on the road, when you lie down, when you get up. Tie them on your hand as a sign. Put them at the front of a headband around your forehead. Write them on the door frames of your house and on your gates. When Adonai your God has brought you into the land, he swore to your ancestors, Avraham, Yitzhak, and Yaakov, that he would give you cities great and prosperous, which you didn't build, houses full of all sorts of good things, which you didn't fill, water cisterns dug, which you didn't dig, vineyards and olive trees, which you didn't plant, and you've eaten your fill, then be careful not to forget Adonai who brought you out of the land of Egypt where you lived as slaves." You are to fear Adonai, your God. Serve him. Swear by his name. You are not to follow other gods chosen from the gods of all the peoples around you because Adonai, your God, who is here with you, is a jealous God. And if you do, the anger of Adonai, your God, will flare up against you and he will destroy you from the face of the earth. Do not put Adonai, your God, to the test as you tested him at Massah. Observe diligently the mitzvot of Adonai your God and his instructions and laws which he has given to you. 
You are to do what is right and good in the sight of Adonai, so the things that things will go well with you, and you will enter and possess the good land Adonai swore to your ancestors, expelling all your enemies ahead of you, as Adonai said. Someday your child will ask you, what's the meaning of the instructions, laws, and rulings which Adonai our God has laid down for you? Then you will tell your child, we were slaves to Pharaoh in Egypt, and Adonai brought us out of Egypt with a strong hand. Adonai worked great and terrible signs and wonders against Egypt, Pharaoh, all his household, before our very eyes. He brought us out from there in order to bring us to the land he had sworn to our ancestors that he would give us. Adonai ordered us to observe all of these laws, to fear Adonai our God, always for our own good, so that he might keep us alive as we are today. It will be righteousness for us if we are careful to obey all of these mitzvot before Adonai our God, just as he ordered us to do. When verse 6 says, these words, which I'm ordering you today, are to be on your heart, it is immediately referring to the Shema. They hear, O Israel, that came immediately before what I just read to you now. And we thoroughly discussed those two verses last week, and I'm not going to review all that with you. But if you missed it, um, either go to the TorahClass.com website or pick up a CD and listen to it, because this is the central tenet of the Judeo-Christian faith. Now please note further that the phrase, these words is also referring to all the laws and the commands which have already been given and are about to be given, because this section of Deuteronomy is in essence an interruption in the flow of the giving of the law, and it's in order for Moses to make a crucial point that God commands that is to be carried out within the context All of his commands are to be carried out within the context of loving God. Without that context, we miss it. The idea is that to make following these commands out to be some kind of heartless or mechanical ritual misses the whole point. Further notice the instruction that the law of the Torah is to be on your heart. I emphasize this because it has been erroneously taught by many church leaders that the Old Testament was a rigid external law code written on stone tablets. And that while the New Testament thus would have been this new dynamic of it being commands of Jesus written internally on our hearts. Now such is obviously not the case. All right. As there, uh, as are many of the Old Testament versus New Testament myths perpetuated by anti-Jewish and anti-scriptural doctrines that really ought to be purged from our thinking by now. Okay. Verse seven tells Israel to teach these laws and commands, especially the Shema, to their children. This is not some idle exhortation. Okay. I mentioned last week that Moses isn't spending. All of this time and energy giving a thorough restatement of the law and then expounding upon its meaning just as some kind of of ceremony 
to celebrate the beginning of, of holy war, to conquer the promised land. Rather, this new generation didn't know much of the law. Their parents, who were the original Exodus generation, are now dead and gone. They didn't do their duty to teach their children. Those that are now standing before Moses to hear this sermon. They didn't teach their children God's laws, nor did they particularly follow the law very scrupulously themselves. At this point, we get a short series of instructions that has formed a great deal of Jewish tradition. And it says that the heads of the households are to speak about the Lord and his commands when you're at home, when you're away, when you lie down, when you get up. Now this statement is a literary device that's not at all confined to Hebrew culture, but it is one that we find used a great deal in the Bible. It is called merism. That is, it's a poetic statement that's meant to, con- to, to uh, convey an idea. All right. It's an expression that, that the several parts of it are combined to present one overarching concept. For instance, in an earlier example of merism back in Genesis, we're told that God created the heavens and the earth. The idea is not that he created only something defined as the heavens and then only something defined as the earth, the planet itself, and then we're left to ponder, did he create everything else too? Rather, it simply means that God created everything because to the Hebrews, the heavens represented the infinite while the earth represented the finite. So the statement about when to speak about the Lord when at home or away, lying down, getting up, simply means at all times in every situation. That's what it means. Okay. Now in verse 8, <clears throat> we encounter an instruction that's created significant controversy inside the Hebrew religion and has generally been ignored in Christianity. Okay. That we are to bind these commands as a sign on our hand and as a symbol on our forehead. Now, the controversy among the Jews is whether this is a literal command in which some kind of ritual device is actually to be fitted to the hand and to the forehead, or whether this is to be a metaphorical statement that simply means that just as the Lord's words are to be constantly thought of and spoken, they're also to become a part of us in a kind of physical sense. And the purpose is for one to constantly be reminded of Yehovah and his law. Now, sometime well after the law was given, a few groups of Jews agreed that this was indeed meant to be taken literally. And so the use of tefillin came into being. In Greek, and therefore we find it in the New Testament, we're going to find direct mention of these ritual objects, using the word phylacteries. Now, tefillin or phylacteries consisted of two small black leather boxes that usually contained four passages of scripture. You see one here, 
one in his hand. Okay. Um, and they're attached to black leather straps. One box is placed on the left arm by the bicep, right? and another is placed on the forehead up by the hairline. And, and they're donned before and during morning prayers by most Orthodox Jews. Okay? But they're not usually used on Sabbath right? and other holy days because it's considered that the actual observance of the holy day itself is the appropriate sign, and therefore no other sign is needed. So before the tefillah, which is singular for tefillin, for the arm is put on, a prayer is usually offered. And this prayer tells us that for the Orthodox Jew, the wearing of tefillin is seen as a commandment from God. So they say in Hebrew, when they're putting it on, Behold, in putting on tefillin, I intend to fulfill the commandment of my Creator who has commanded us to put on tefillin, as is written in his Torah. And then Deuteronomy 6.8 is quoted, Bind them as a sign upon your arm, let them be tefillin between your eyes. Okay. Now, the reality, though, is that this last sentence comes, that comes from Deuteronomy 6.8, the Hebrew word tefillin isn't there. Rather, the word is totofate. Okay. Which more correctly means bands. Right? Thus, what we have here in the wearing of tefillin is a tradition. Now, not all Hebrews observe this tradition. And there is no evidence whatsoever that this tradition even existed before 250 BC. Okay? We do know from records that the Pharisees made the wearing of tefillin a strict part of their doctrines and teachings. Right. And at some point, took to wearing them not only at morning prayer, but at all times except when they slept. Okay. Now we also know that the Hebrews who lived in Samaria did not observe this tradition, which of course was a great and intended insult to the Jews at that time. Jews of Judea, rather. Okay. And it appears that this was primarily a custom of those Jews who lived in Judea around that center of, uh, of Jewish orthodoxy, which was at that time was Jerusalem. Right. There is no record of any widespread use of tefillin in the Galilee, where Yeshua was from. Okay. So, was it only Pharisees that wore tefillin? Apparently not, because ancient tefillin were found among the artifacts of the Essenes at Qumran. Right? And they are even mentioned within their community documents of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Josephus discusses tefillin and goes on to explain that at times even the Ten Commandments were included uh, among those writings that were stored inside those little black miniature leather boxes. So we know that how they were worn and what were contained in them changed a little bit over time, and that different groups of Jews developed different tefillin traditions. Now, the, the head, the forehead tefillah, is placed in the center of the forehead, as you see up here, with yet another prayer recited, and then the straps 
in the, in, in the back, you can't see them here, of course, are knotted in a special way so as they form the Hebrew letter Dalit. Alright, and then the arm strap by the hand is to be in the form of a yod. Alright, thus three Hebrew letters form the name Shaddai. Okay, Alfred Edersham, who was a tremendous Hebrew Christian scholar, writes of the Tefillin's mystical significance to those who tended to wear it. For their value and importance in the eyes of the rabbis, it were impossible to exaggerate it. Okay, they were reverenced as highly as the scriptures. It was said that Moses had received the law of their observance from God on Mount Sinai, that the Tephilim were more sacred than the golden plate on the forehead of the high priest, since its inscription embodied only the sacred name of Yehovah, while the Tephilim contained not less than 20, contained that name not less than 23 times. So Alfred Edersham also affirms that although the Pharisees were scrupulous about wearing them, he says, the admission that neither the officiating priests nor the representatives of the people wore them in the temple. So it seems to imply that this practice wasn't quite universal. The Pharisees wanted to be noticed for their outward piousness. And as we will all recall, Yeshua criticized them for this. And a lot of the other actions, such as having a trumpet blown whenever they contributed money to the temple coffers. <laughs> but what is key to notice is that in his quite typical British manner of understatement, Alfred Edersham says that this practice of wearing tefillin wasn't quite universal. Translation, it was just pretty much a minority of Jews who did this in Yeshua's day. Now, I have heard um, several Jewish roots teachers say that Jesus wore tefillin. Now, this is anywhere from highly unlikely to approaching not a chance. Okay, Yeshua was a common peasant Jew from the Galilee. All right. He often displayed that typical Galilean attitude of utter disdain all right, towards the inflated religious egos of the Jewish religious authorities of Jerusalem. And that included the Pharisees who were a vital part of that religious authority. Now let me be clear. The wearing of tefillin is at the least a dubious interpretation of the Torah. So is the wearing of tefillin necessarily wrong? No. Not at all. But it is in no way a direct biblical command. Okay. The great Rambam and many other elite Jewish sages uh, say unequivocally that the statement to bind them as a sign on your arm and put on your forehead is a metaphor. It's not meant to be taken literally. But like every man-made tradition or invention of a new symbol, there is danger. And we find that danger quite evident simply in the Greek word that was used for tefillin. And that word is phylactery. See, phylactery 
isn't a special new Greek word that was invented to describe this unique Hebrew habit of some Jews wearing these leather boxes and straps with small scrolls inside of them. Phylactery is a very general Greek term that means amulet. An amulet is a magic charm. It is a small object said to possess healing powers or protection qualities. And as one might expect, among the many Jews who eventually did decide to wear tefillin, some of them thought of those phylacteries as objects that possessed godly power in and of themselves. In fact, we have it expressly stated in an ancient Jewish targum that the tefillin prevented all hostile demons from doing any injury to Israel. Okay. That said, I just don't think we ought to be judgmental about the Jews' use of this ancient cultural tradition. However, emulating it, especially as Gentile believers, I think is a little bit of a stretch. But before we begin now discussing mezuzahs and their use, let me make something quite clear. The Bible does not prohibit every possible manufacturer use of symbols. Everything that's a symbol is not wrong. Okay? We were created by our Lord as visual creatures. And thus symbols are an important element in helping to remind us of our position and our allegiance to God Almighty. However, there are strict rules and principles governing, making, or using symbols, and they're found in the Torah. And Deuteronomy throughout helps us to be very cautious not to develop symbols that can be used or taken by others in a wrong way. The Torah tends towards firmly prohibiting symbols that tend to anthropomorphize God. That is, it speaks against something that would have God taking on a human-like quality, expressed in a human-like form. Therefore, there is to be no statues, no paintings, no carved images of any kind said to depict him. Truthfully, the wonderful works of Michelangelo in the Sistine Chapel probably ought never to have been done. All right? Because many of them have God depicted as a bearded old man floating around on the clouds. And, and this kind of image that became so very popular in the Renaissance period has unconsciously, in some cases consciously, pervaded the church. And it has greatly distorted the true image of just who God is. It has caused us at times to think of him more as a superhuman than an infinitely superior non-human. We are also specifically prohibited from using any created thing that is created by God as a model for a symbol that identifies with 
the Lord. Things like stars or the moon or animals or fish or any kind of sea creature. Conversely, the Bible does give us certain God-ordained symbols that we are divinely authorized to use, although within certain limits. Okay, And among these are tzitzit, fringe, and perhaps the one, and perhaps also the object that we're about to study next, the mezuzah. We'll get there. And notice that none of these things that are God-ordained violate the rules that the Lord sets down about the usage of symbols and images. Now, the mezuzah is a continuation of the Lord's extreme importance that he places on a worshiper's act of always remembering who he is and that he's our God. Now, now this instruction in verse 9 to write his laws on the door frames of your house and on your gates is, is unlike for Tefillin, is universally agreed within Judaism to be a literal command to place scripture on the entry to your home and on the gate into a village or a city. But it could also reasonably be construed to be a metaphor about honoring the Lord, especially in, in your own home, I think. You know, it was common in Moses' era as well as before and after to write some sort of message or epithet honoring one's God above your doorway. Okay, so Most societies did that in one form or another back then. It was also the norm then to have some kind of message at the main entries into uh, cities that would pronounce the greatness of the king that presided over that city or perhaps of the god that they worshipped. Right. And it was no less so in Egypt from which the Israelites had come. So it's no wonder that the order to remember the Lord and to sort of dedicate the premises to the Lord by means of writing some of his scripture on an entryway was completely understood to be carrying on of that to be the carrying on of that very common ancient Middle Eastern custom. Now in Jesus' era, there, this was therefore something that all Jews, Judean, Galilean, even the uh, Samarians, all right, and the diaspora Jews, they pretty much agreed on this. Okay. Now, how this was to be done wasn't elaborated upon in the Holy Scriptures. So, of course, traditions developed to handle it. And it appears that the practice that we see today with this small oblong device that can be affixed to a doorway actually first appeared in the second temple period, slightly before and then during Yeshua's time. And inside this device called a mesuza, all right, typically went some Torah portions written that were using miniature letters written on a, a tiny piece of parchment. And usually Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9, and 11, 13 through 21 are what was written on those scrolls. Now, like with the Tefillin, Mesuzas were also found at Qumran. 
Right? And in addition to having those particular verses within them, several of those ancient mesuzahs also included the Ten Commandments. But sadly, again, just like the Tefillin, even this God-ordained symbol at times sometimes took on the characteristic of, characteristics of an amulet. We find that even the great Jewish religious leader, Rabbi Judah the Prince, sent a mezuzah to the Parthian king, Ardavan, with a message attached to it that said if he would attach this to his home's doorposts, it would protect him. And in the end, most of the details involving the use of mezuzahs are traditions. Yet the principle of their use, as with the Tefillin, is definitely biblical. My advice is that if you want to employ a mesuzah, I do, all right, to indicate your family's allegiance to the God of Israel or simply to remind you of the Lord's commands as you come and go, that you at least follow standard, virtually universal, Jewish traditions about placement of it. Primarily so that you don't ruin the witness right, if a Jewish person comes to your home. Okay? And the main thing to know is that it is to be placed on the upper third right, of the right door jam, right side from the outside looking inward, all right, with the top angled in right, slightly towards the home's interior. That is standard Jewish practice. Now, one more thing. While doorposts are um, generally referring to your personal home, the gates, it speaks of, are referring to the city or village point of entry. The city gates functioned as the town square in the biblical eras, and even as the area where court was held. It's not unlike the practice that used to exist in America of posting the Ten Commandments in our courts of law to remind us, all who were in attendance, that it was these principles that formed the foundation for all of our laws. And that the Lord is looking down upon these proceedings and He wants justice and mercy according to his definition administered. Now in verse 10, the act of remembering takes on a different kind of importance from Tefillin and Mesusot. And it is that whether in poverty or prosperity, one is exhorted to look back upon history, biblical history, salvation history, even our own personal history, and all the wondrous things that God has done for our sake. However, make no mistake, the main thrust of these passages passages is about our remembering His sovereignty, especially in the time of prosperity, because it's our tendency to look more to ourselves and our man-made societies and away from the Lord when things are going really well for us. This is the part of today's lesson where the rubber hits the road. So please stay with me.
The Lord says here in Deuteronomy 6, don't allow abundance to make you forget your God and turn to other gods. Oh, what unheeded wisdom that warning has been throughout mankind's history, throughout Israel's history, the church's history. Perhaps never before to such great extent as today in Europe and America. You know, it's so ironic that the one thing that causes most people to go astray is the seeking and attainment of wealth. And that's because, in my opinion, we feel a lot less dependent on the Lord when we seem to have everything we need and more. Now, believe me, I'm in no way glorifying poverty all right, or criticizing abundance. I'm simply saying that prosperity can be a very dangerous thing. Okay, I have first-hand experience with that. Many years ago, in the middle portion of my corporate career, success brought a great fall for me. You know, it's not that I ever doubted that Yeshua was my Savior or that the Lord God was and is. It's that I forgot about my relationship with Him. I saw no need to consult Him on my daily life because I had more than I'd ever imagined. Everything I touched seemed to turn to gold. I was completely self-sufficient, prideful. I think arrogant would probably be a pretty fair word to use. I gave no thought to God's ways and His laws or even to the reality of and my need for His presence in my life. Okay. I certainly gave no thought to His holiness nor did I give thanks to him for the blessings that he had provided because I was much too busy congratulating myself for it all. Then came the fall. It was a hard and painful lesson to learn that what the Lord says, he means. And it applies to everybody without exception. And so the Lord says, beginning in verse 10, that once Israel finally possessed the land that had been promised to Abraham 600 years earlier, and once the Israelites began to benefit from all the preparations that the Lord had made for them, that there were a few things that they needed to keep in mind, or they, like I did, would find themselves in a place they really didn't want to be in regard to the relationship with the Lord. And there would be severe and inescapable consequences. So my dear brothers and sisters in Messiah, hear this warning. In a nutshell, the Hebrews are told that all they are about to receive, they didn't build. All they're about to inherit, they haven't earned with merit. The cities and the houses they'll live in are being forcibly taken from the various tribes and nations of Canaan who built them. Taken by the Lord is what's happening. And all of it's simply just being turned over to Israel for their benefit. The vineyards with the luscious and enormous grapes that they will enjoy, Israel didn't plant. 
They didn't tend those vines. The olive groves that will produce the all-important oil needed for everything from cooking to powering their oil lamps to being necessary ingredients for several of the ritual ceremonies that the Lord has ordained are a ready-to-go gift that others worked for for generations. And Israel is receiving it merely for showing up. Israel is reminded that they didn't elect themselves. They didn't separate themselves to be God's special people. The Lord selected them and he blessed them as his own. And by the way, they also didn't rescue themselves from the Pharaoh. God did it all. Bottom line, everything that Israel needs, the Lord is prepared to give it to them. What he wants in return is their love and trust of him. The fundamental truth about the kingdom of heaven is that whatever we build with our own hands that comes from our own minds will burn up when the end of history arrives. That which the Lord builds through us, though, will survive. The lesson is that that which is worth anything of real value is willed and accomplished by the Lord and he deserves the credit and we don't. That in no way indicates that we're to just sit back passively and wait for the good times to come rolling our way. No, our lives are to be a cooperative effort with the Lord. Yehovah tells the Israelites that he has prepared the battlefield ahead of them. He's assured the victory, but they still have to go through with the fighting. But they're to fight when he says to fight. And they're not to fight when he says not to fight. No matter how good or foolish the whole thing seems to them. They have to put their very lives on the line and be willing to give up everything that's dear to them. Does this sound familiar? The lesson shown to us here is that action on our part is invariably required. It's demanded by God. But what are the characteristics of the action we are to take? How do we know when it's the Lord leading and not the misguided mindset of an agenda-driven man such as ourselves. <laughs> Moses, the leader of Israel, personally sacrificed everything for the Hebrew nation and was constantly accountable to the Lord and to the people. Moses didn't live under one set of rules and demand everybody else live under another. The elders were accountable at every step to Moses. Moses was no less apt to be punished by the Lord for a sin or an act of rebellion than any one of those three million anonymous citizens of Israel. The plans and goals, though difficult, were good for the group. And they were good for the kingdom of heaven. It was not to allow Moses to win a popularity poll. And every step along the way, it was a fulfillment of a God-ordained covenant or promise. The leader, Moses, never even got to economically or personally benefit 
from his 40-year effort. Some or all of these characteristics plays a key role in our determining whether it's men's plans or God's plans that we're being asked to buy into. Now notice what happens as a result of following a plan or an agenda that's not truly of the Lord, even though it sure may sound holy. Verse 14 says, Do not follow other gods, any gods of the peoples around you. Okay, I'm going to meddle a little bit here. We've seen a number of times that the biblical term for following other gods is idolatry. But we have also seen that God clearly labels idolatry as virtually the placing of anything ahead of him. Okay. The, this, this definition of idolatry that I just gave you isn't allegory. This is the Lord's actual biblical definition of idolatry. Okay. Do we place our comfortable doctrines, our personal habits and practices that please us, but that really have no scriptural validity, ahead of his truth, because his truth and his way aren't so easy? Are we bound and determined to fight to the death to hold on to these dubious things because we like them? And so we rationalize them. That is idolatry in its purest sense. Israel denied their idolatry at every step. And it was only upon God's wrath that they ever seemed to recognize it and admit it for what it was. What is it that the world seeks? Who is it that the world follows? By definition, the world seeks and follows things that are either not God or they're more important than God. The world seeks other gods. The world seeks the God of prosperity. The world seeks the God of inalienable human rights. The God of sexual freedom. The God of happiness and personal pleasure. The God of geopolitical harmony. When we, the believers of the God of Israel, seek to use the same sorts of things that the world prefers in order to attract new folks to us, but we just add a little religious element to it, then we're on a very dangerous path. But since we usually do them in a Christian environment, we often deceive ourselves into believing that we can avoid those dangers of slipping into idolatry. And what are the results of our cavalier attitudes in this regard? Verse 15 says, the anger of the Lord will blaze up against us. If I hear one more time that our Father doesn't get angry at His people and He never punishes us, I believe I'm going to have a heart attack. This is apostasy. It's denial from the plain scriptural truth. We're not perfect in his eyes. We're justified in his eyes. We have seen the example of how the Lord deals with, deals his justice among his own set apart people. Israel, redeemed Israel, was punished and disciplined time and again, often with significant loss of life. 
We reviewed in Torah class the records of the tribes that were said to regularly go astray. And we find, for instance, in the case of Simeon and Dan, they were decimated. And their populations reduced by half and more. You know, since 1965, church attendance in America began to dwindle. Why did our beloved church start to decline? I think I'd peg it to when the church goal became growth and prosperity above almost anything else. I think I'd peg it to when we started to move towards the world rather than keeping our standards high and intact. You know, it's interesting that the era of the megachurch, with its ability to provide awesome surroundings and a wide array of services and activities for its congregation, began at that same time. We are essentially following, just some years behind, the identical trend of Europe. 200 years ago, Europe was 90% Christian. Today it's less than three. Churches are now becoming mosques. They're changed into storefronts, museums, concert halls. In America, the most recent studies show without doubt that the number of people who attend church is dropping at the rate of about 1% per year since 1990. Americans who even claim to be believers is dropping at an even faster rate. Folks, we need to face it. The Lord isn't very pleased with us. We fiddled while Rome burned. We Christians have abandoned the simple loveliness of the gospel in favor of real slick marketing. We've replaced teaching God's word with rousing sermons about everything from the need to give more money to why we should vote. We've come to believe that if we present ourselves to the non-believing world by packaging ourselves a little more attractively, they'll join us. Of course, that packaging that appeals to the world doesn't look very much like the laws and commands of God, does it? And of course, the opposite of that intended effect has happened. The books of Joshua and Judges chronicle the fall of Israel into apostasy and disarray because they decided that rather than follow the Lord's demand that they possess the land that he prepared for them and to fight for what is right in the Lord's eyes, they sought to appease their pagan neighbors through diplomacy, compromise, and treaty. Their hope was to obtain their inheritance by peaceful means in a rational and logical way similar to how the world has always operated. Israel's still trying to do that. And now so is the church. Believe me, I'm not pointing fingers. I'm accepting blame. But now that we've discovered our folly and know we've stumbled, let's 
determined together now tonight to rekindle our love for God, to recover His Word, to cling steadfastly to its principles, to increase outward ministry that's always been expected of us. Let's not scramble so much after comfort and prosperity. Let's open ourselves to Him and see what service to Him He wants of each and every one of us. And what glorious blessings He just may have waiting for us if only we'll be obedient and not chase after other gods. We'll finish off chapter 6 next week.